Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word, that it's truth, that Jesus has so much to teach us. And I pray that you'd fill us with your spirit so we can understand what you're saying to the church today, to each one of our hearts. Lord, help us to be humble and submissive before you, to hear your word, to let it sink into our hearts and be fruitful. And we pray that you would cause it to grow and that through our lives, many lives would be touched with the gospel, with the truth of your word, through prayer, through uh, loving one another as you love us. And I pray that you'd help us today to draw near to you and you'll draw near to us. We're confident of that in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 4, starting at verse 1, is where we'll be. When we're struggling, it's really a comfort to know we're not alone in that struggle. And discovering that we've had a similar experience to someone else, it can really, and someone who's gone through something and who has come through the other side, um, it's a point of common ground, and it gives you encouragement to keep going. And that shared experience, it gives us a compassion and a sympathy for other people that we never had before. Um, when I did my knee years ago, um, I mean, I had watched sport for many years and seen people blow out their knee and be carted off the field, and you, you kind of feel for them, but not after it's happened to you. There's, there's now a level of compassion that it's gone up a notch when I see someone on the ground writhing in pain, and I know the thoughts that can go through your head where you're thinking, how bad's the damage? Is my career over? Will I be able to run again? What about the team? And so all, all the mental part of it, the physical part, and just the pain of going through the physio, and um, you, you start to understand, and, and when you know people who have also gone through that, there's that point of common ground, and Jesus was tempted, like we're tempted, we can feel all alone in our temptation. We feel like no one really knows what we're going through when we're tempted and how hard it is to, uh, to walk in the Spirit. And uh, Jesus, he was identified as the Messiah by the Father, by the Holy Spirit. God made flesh, and he was in human form able to feel pain and sorrow, uh, the discomfort of hunger pangs and uh, being tired and weary, he could feel happiness like us, and he had physical needs like eating and drinking and needing to wash. He had hormones, like he had, a, he had the things that we have going on. And in this world corrupted by sin, he was tempted, in all points tempted. And because Jesus overcame every temptation, it didn't make him proud and arrogant like, well, I can do it, you can do it. But it actually, the Bible says, he, it caused him to sympathize with us. And so we are motivated then to seek him in prayer. It says that in Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. It says, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We can be bold in prayer because Jesus feels for us. He sympathizes with our weaknesses. He knows what it feels like to be tempted and how it feels like to be alone and to be rejected. Jesus has given us such privileged access into his life. And as we read this, Jesus was alone in the wilderness. The Father was with him, of course. The Spirit was upon him. But the only way that we could hear about, the disciples heard about this is because Jesus told them. Jesus told them about his temptation. 
He told them how for 40 days he was tempted and, and that we're not alone. I mean, have you ever been tempted with one thing for 40 days straight? It's like, hmm, probably not. Luke 4, verse 1. Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. And in those days he ate nothing. And afterward, when they had ended, he was hungry. Jesus had just been baptized, not for repentance, but to identify with sinners. He was filled with the Holy Spirit, and then he went, he was led by the Spirit to go into the wilderness to be tempted. And for 40 days, he did not eat food. Now, does it seem strange to you that he'd be led by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil? We're going to talk about temptation. There's several ways in the Bible the word's used. Uh, the first is like when Eve, the, the temptation she faced in the garden, where she was tempted to sin, to disbelieve the word of God, to disobey the command of God. To, she was enticed. She saw the beauty of the fruit, that it was good for food. And she was in a, in a condition where she could eat anything she wanted except one thing. So not like Jesus, who couldn't for 40 days eat anything and was tempted. She had everything but sinned. Um, another way the word tempt is used is to test or to examine. Like a new product is vigorously tested before uh, someone offers a guarantee. You, if you open an electronic or uh, like an appliance or a tool, it'll say factory tested and have someone's name. So it says that God tempted Abraham. Now, he wasn't tempting him to sin, but he was testing him. He was examining him. He was putting him to the test. And it says that God tested his people to see whether they would obey him or not. There are also times where we can tempt God, where we put him to the test, sinfully out of doubt. And that, that would be uh, wrong for us to tempt God. Jesus told his disciples, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. And it's because of the wickedness of our hearts that we are drawn into sin. We are enticed to sin. If you could turn to James chapter 1, starting in verse 13, we'll see that God doesn't tempt us to do evil. The temptations he's, he allows are to try us, to examine us. And it's one of those tests that it's when we fail, we understand that we have failed the test. James 1, 13 through 15. So there's no blaming God for our falling into sin. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. So the Holy Spirit did not tempt Jesus to sin. The Holy Spirit led Jesus to the wilderness where the devil tempted him, and he, uh, we'll see how he overcame that. But just like the, right, the, the requirements to have a child, you need an egg that's fertilized by sperm, right? Both need to come together at the same time. And so he's saying the way that sin is conceived in our lives is because there's an evil desire in your heart or there's, a, there's a, a wickedness within you and then there's an opportunity to act out on it and you're enticed for those two things to come together. That's when sin's conceived and it brings forth death. Jesus, he had no wickedness within him. 
So those enticements, they had no hold. They had no grab on him. He was not allured by things because, um, to do sin because there was no sin in him. Um, and he was tempted for 40 days straight. Now, Satan, the devil, he's an actual being. He was created by God who was lifted with pride, and uh, he's called by many names in the Bible. He's crafty and cruel. He's compared to a roaring lion. Um, he can appear as an angel of light. Uh, he's a thief, a murderer, a deceiver. He's called the father of lies in John eight forty four. the tempter, the dragon, um, a lot of different Beelzebub. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 2, 10 and 11, Now whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven one for your sakes in the presence of Christ, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. So Satan, he hates God, his desire is to rule as God, and he looks to take advantage of us by enticing us to sin. Because we're born with the sin nature of Adam, we lean towards and gravitate. There's, there's an attractiveness to sin that's within us because of the flesh. And he connected here the sin of unforgiveness with Satan's ability to take advantage of us, to get a foothold in your life. It's like opening the door and giving him access to a part of our lives that he has no right over. We're natural-born sinners, but since we're saved, by grace through faith in Christ, we don't have to open the door to him. We can resist the devil just as Jesus did, and we'll see how he did that. Um, Adam had dominion over the whole earth. He ate of the forbidden fruit. Now Satan comes to Jesus, and he targets a physical need. Jesus hadn't eaten during those 40 days. He was hungry. Jesus chose to deny himself food, and led by the Holy Spirit, even as he was led by the Holy Spirit in the wilderness, he was led by the Spirit too fast. And so his faith was in God, his obedience was to God, the Father, and that's what the devil targeted. So it's an area of legitimate need, right? We need to eat. Jesus needed to eat too. Luke 4, 3 and 4, the devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him saying, it is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. God had just said from the heavens, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He identified Jesus as the Christ. And based on the sentence structure, we'll see this word if used in all the devil's temptations of Jesus. The Greek word can be used depending on the context, like if, like what if, and also since. And this could be used in both ways where he says, if you're the son of God, so like I'm kind of doubting that you're the son of God, so to prove that you're the son of God, do this thing, make yourself food out of this stone. Or it could mean, since you're the son of God, you deserve this. You have the power to do it. Why not give yourself food? So it could be used in both ways. Um, verse 3 works for both since and if. And he tempts him again for this legitimate need of the body to satisfy that, but through selfish um, ways that God had not commanded. He says, turn that stone into bread, satisfy your hunger. Now the needs and desires of our bodies, they can be a snare to us, can't they? Right? 
we can justify eating because we feel hungry. And uh, I've learned as I get older that I, I, well, when I was younger, I liked to eat till I felt full. Now I've learned that I need to stop eating before I feel too full or else I will begin to fill up the pants that I'm trying to wear uh, and I'll need to buy new ones. So uh, Jesus responded with this temptation with a response from Scripture in all three occasions. Instead of being governed by his physical needs, Jesus, he was governed by God's word, what God said and how God led him. Turn, please, to Deuteronomy chapter 8. This is the verse, this is part of the verses that Jesus quoted from about man shall not live by bread alone. And we'll get the context of how that was used. And Jesus is such, being the author of Scripture and having all wisdom, the verses that he quotes, the context is perfect for the situation. Deuteronomy 8 verse 1. It says, every commandment which I command you today, you must be careful to observe, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and to test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone. But man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So the context of this situation was the children of Israel, they had come out of Egypt. What did God miraculously feed them with daily? Bread. Bread from heaven for 40 years. And they called it manna. And that means, what is it? Because they had no idea what this bread was, but it just appeared. The Lord caused it to, to fall daily, and they gathered it up and ate. And he says, I did this for a reason. I did it to humble you, to test you, to see if you would keep my laws or not. He allowed them to hunger. We see hunger is a bad thing. Like it's bad. A hunger pang, I need to deal with that right away. I shouldn't be feeling this. No one should have to feel this. But he says that served a purpose that you would learn something that only this would teach you. Teach you of my sovereignty and my provision, that what I say, I will sustain you. If you obey me, you'll live. Like, it, they're connected with one another. Remember, the law limited the diets of what they could eat. They're in a place in the wilderness where food is scarce, they might be intent on eating anything they could find just to survive, but God's saying, trust me for 40 years, trust me, obey me, learn that you live not by the bread that you're eating, but because I'm, I am commanding you to live. He's making them to live. Trust and obey me, God was saying. Now, Jesus, he doesn't justify disobeying God because he's hungry or thirsty or has a headache. As God, Jesus had power to do miracles, right? He's raising the dead. He's causing the blind to see. He's multiplying loaves and fish. He's healing the sick. He's raising the dead. But as a man, he was subject to the Father. He willingly waived a degree of divine privilege when he came in human form so his faith would be tested, so that temptation could be fully felt 
He didn't like default to his divine power to escape discomfort. Right? It wasn't like he was operating under a different set of rules than you and me. When his disciples were away, he's like, you know, I'd really like a uh, meat pie right now, you know, turning something into a meat pie to eat when no one's looking because he feels hungry. He didn't do that. He had every right to. He could have as the Son of God. It, doing miracles was not an ace up his sleeve. Whenever he felt the pinch of hunger, he could turn lint into bread in his pocket and eat it, and nobody knew. Like, he always has bread in his pockets. What's with that? Have you checked that out? I mean, he didn't do anything to lessen the pinch of hunger, to avoid the uncomfortable trial. He went through it all as a person. He endured that temptation like a person. And he showed us um, how to navigate that as, um, as God, as our guide. In the power of the Holy Spirit, because see what he does. He's in the power of the Holy Spirit, and he uses the word of God to resist the devil. And those are two things that you can have in, in Jesus Christ through faith in him. He's given you his word. He's given you the Holy Spirit. Hebrews 2, 17 and 18. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren. Jesus, like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Because Jesus was tempted and he overcame every temptation, he's able to help everyone who is tempted. And he has sympathy for us in our weaknesses. Jesus is kind of like the student who aces the HSC exam, 100%, no trouble at all, and he's able to help those students who are struggling. He's saying, I mean, he passed this test perfectly. He doesn't just provide answers or methods and then just say, you're on your own, but he says, I will never leave you or forsake you. I'm with you. When you're going through the test, I'll be with you. I am in you through the Holy Spirit. So it's not like, I hope you do okay on your own. When the time starts and you have to take that test by yourself, doesn't work that way because the Holy Spirit's within us. We have him and he has us. Verse five, then the devil taking him up on a high mountain showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, all this authority I will give you and their glory for this has been delivered to me and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered and said to him, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. The devil took Jesus to this high mountain, showed him all the kings of the world. In a moment of time, it seems to be like a vision, like if you said, my life flashed before my eyes, um, that he... Because to see everything in one moment of time, that would be impossible. But he, he gives them this grand vision of everything. You know, the wealth, the fame, uh, the power, harems, armies to command. Uh, all the authority in the world, he says, this is all yours if you just bow the knee to me, if you'll worship me. Jesus doesn't debate the power or the authority of the devil, the ability. It's like, oh, come on, you can't give me that stuff. He doesn't say that. That's not the issue. He doesn't debate or argue with him. Jesus affirms in another place in John 12, 31, that he is the ruler of the world. He follows up with saying he will be cast out. 
He, his authority and scope of authority is limited, and the time frame is limited. The devil's temptation, it suggests the end justifies the means. If you can quickly arrive to having the fame and the power and the wealth that you want, it doesn't matter how you get there. I mean, think of the trade-off. You just bow the knee to me, and then you're in charge. You're in control. I don't know if Satan realized that Jesus was the king of kings, that he would rule all nations with the rod of iron, but the glory of this world and the power of it that's fading away, it had no grip on Jesus. He would famously say, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? And this temptation to worship anyone but God was instantly met with rebuke from Jesus, from the scripture, and he says, get behind me, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. He quoted from Deuteronomy 6.13. He would not bow the knee for a second. He would not yield and give worship to the devil, which only belongs to God. We can justify the pursuit of many things, and dare I say the worship of many things, wealth, fame, and power, imagining that we'll only use them for good and we won't be corrupted by them. Right? We're kind of like the one ring. Oh, I'll use that in the Lord of the Rings. Oh, I'll use it for good. Give me that power. <laughs> but the heart of man is deceitful above all things. Who can know it? If, if you have to sin to be rich, it's better to be poor. And no one is poor who follows Jesus Christ because in him is all the wealth of the kingdom of God. Jesus knew the path to having, a, to having that authority over all things. The path that God was leading him on involved grief, suffering, and trials. He would not use divine power or the comforts of the world to circumvent it. He said to his disciples in Luke 24, 25, and 26, Then he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all the prophets have spoken, Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? So Jesus is like, well, this is the easy way, right? To bow the knee to you and you just give it to me. But I know the way God's leading me on will involve suffering. I need to suffer because that's the path God has me on. Jesus made his disciples fishers of men. And the devil also is a fisher of men, but uses very different tactics and has different motive. Um, the devil, he's got that sharp hook concealed within an attractive bait, right? The bait looks good to the fish, but the intent of the fisherman is to snare that fish, to catch it and to take it out of the water. And sin, it brings death. Jesus, he doesn't just... Uh, tell us about the blessings of following God. He says, in this world, you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer because I've overcome the world. He uses no bait. He uses no hook, uh, no net. But he asks us to trust him and to follow him willingly like a sheep does at the voice of the shepherd without a bit bridle. There's some great videos on YouTube about this where they have people trying to call the sheep, trying to get the sheep's attention. And then you have the shepherd come up and go like, hey, and the sheep are like, huh? And they all just come. All of them. 
And he didn't have to lasso them all or, or herd them or anything. All he had to do is say this call and the sheep just know. And they all just start tottering over. It's really cool. It's like, that's the way that God works. He's not trying to trick you to destroy you. He's seeking to, he's saying, hey, you're blessed in my presence. I will lead you beside those still waters and cause you to lie down in green pastures. I'll be with you through the valley of the shadow of death. You don't need to be afraid of anything. I'm going to supply food for you, even in the, in the midst of your enemies. There will be abundance in your life that you cannot buy because I am your good shepherd and you are my sheep. Luke 4, verse 9. Then he brought him to Jerusalem set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you. And in their hands, they shall bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, it has been said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Now when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Satan finally brings Jesus to the top of the temple, sets him on the pinnacle. Having been rebuffed by Scripture twice, now the devil uses the Scripture, twists it, distorts it, takes it out of context to say, hey, well, you're the Son of God. You obey God, and look, you trust Him, right? If you trust Him, jump down from here. The angels will save you. He quotes from Psalm 91, 10 and 11, that says, No evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling, for he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. The devil knows scriptures. He can quote them. But he had the context all wrong because his heart is wicked. Jesus did not need to prove he was the Son of God by his miraculous survival, but through his death on Calvary and his resurrection. That's how he would show he was the son of God. Because remember, they said, what sign are you going to show us um, to prove your authority? He says, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. He says, look at, you know, you were looking for a sign? The prophet Jonah, even as he was three days in the belly of the earth, uh, belly of the fish, so the son of man will be three days in the belly of the earth. So that was how he was going to prove he's the son of God. Not the way the devil dictated he should. He quoted from Deuteronomy 6.16 that says, You shall not tempt the Lord your God as you tempted him in Massa. This is a really compelling point because what happened in Massa? Now, Jesus doesn't mention it in the Luke passage, but if you cross-reference it in the Old Testament, you see there's more to the story that as they tempted him in Massa. So what happened there? Well, the children of Israel had come out of Egypt. They... They had no water, and they blamed God and Moses for leading them that way. And they said, you've just brought us out here to die. You just want to kill us. Moses sought the Lord, and God says, stand on the rock, hit the rock, water will flow from the rock, and people can eat. And then it's explained in Exodus 17, 7, why they called it Massa or Meribah. So he called the place the name Massa and Meribah because of the contention of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? Satan's temptation was throw yourself down from here and prove you are the Son of God. The angels will save you. Like if you really believe God, you'd do it. And he's saying, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Because they were questioning, the Israelites were, is God here or not? We're out here, we're thirsty. 
we have no water. And he caused water to flow from the rock, the living water that comes through Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful picture, but this is the proof. The proof is already there. He doesn't need to perform some miracle so that they know that God's among them. The children of Israel doubted God was among them, and they tempted God with their complaints. They contended with Moses over God's motives. They falsely accused them of wanting to destroy them. Jesus illustrates the need here for us to be grounded in the whole counsel of God, to go and say, well, what does the context of that passage say? Because it's easy to take a verse or a series of verses and and create a doctrine that's not biblical, and it's from the Bible, but it's like a cut-and-paste theology. It doesn't um, flow with the context because there are many who will twist and distort Scripture to their own end and justify themselves, justify a doctrine or practice based upon some of Scripture rather than the whole counsel of God. So using Scripture to interpret Scripture, teaching the whole counsel of God is led by the Holy Spirit. It keeps us from error. So finally, after a 40-day fast filled with temptation, verse 13, it says, the devil ended every temptation and departed from him until an opportune time or a better season. I thought David Guzik made a great observation concerning this. He says, Satan will not continually put his limited resources into an ineffective battle. If you want Satan to leave you alone for a while, you must continually resist him. Many are so attacked because they resist so little. Because of our flesh, because of our sinful choices, we are easy targets. It's like the devil only needs to trot out a few things and and has... Uh, universal appeal to people, right? Wealth, fame, power, abundance, those are things that he tempted Jesus with. The way we deal with temptation quite often is just caving to it. Like, I want the temptation to end, so I will just give in to the temptation, thinking that that will um, bring some respite, which it may for a short time. But then, that cycle begins to perpetuate. When we succumb to temptation, it's often connected with our unbelief, our forgetfulness of who we are in Christ, and what God has promised in his word. Why was Jesus able to resist the devil? Well, because he was submitted to God. Can you please turn to James chapter 4, starting in verse 6. This is just one reason, but it's one that we can lay hold of. James 4, 6, and 7. I think it's very easy for us to just look at Jesus' divinity and say, well, of course he resisted temptation because he's God, so he can. But I'm not God, so I can't. Right? That's kind of how our silly logic goes. It's quite illogical. But it sounds sensible to justify our failure and our lack of repentance, right? This is how I operate. This is how we can operate. James 4, 6, and 7. But he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Jesus had submitted himself to God. He was humbled before God. He was thus empowered to resist the devil because the flesh cannot resist the devil indefinitely. 
Jesus does not debate or argue, but resisted him until it was Satan who gave up. Our mistake is to try to resist the devil in the flesh before we've submitted ourselves to God. We get the order wrong, right? And the, fact, the proof that we got the order wrong is because we didn't resist the devil and we chose sin willfully. We can be proud of our authority. We can rebuke the devil's temptations, but he knows it's all bluster if we're walking in the flesh, if we're filled with pride. Therefore, we must humble ourselves before God, submit to him, and then we can recognize the temptation that comes because we may not even recognize it if we're walking in the flesh. Then we can see the temptation, go, hold on, the Bible says this. I'm not falling for that one by God's grace. It's not because of my understanding, right? We just so easily slide into that pride. So Jesus, he, he passes the most rigorous testing perfectly. Angels come and minister to him. And may the Lord use 1 Corinthians 10, 13 to minister to your heart. It says, no temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. The ability for us to resist temptation is based upon the faithfulness of God. It's not your strength, it's not your abilities, it's not your maturity, it's the faithfulness of God. It's the Spirit of God who is gracious, compassionate, and kind. And the temptations that God allows, every temptation He allows, He does so um, knowing your level of maturity, knowing your level of understanding, he doesn't expect us to sit university exams when we have the maturity of a, of a year two kid. He doesn't say, oh man, I thought you were going to pass that test. I mean, you're my child. You should know everything. You should be perfect. No, he, he, he actually goes right to our level. He knows the areas where we struggle. He knows the areas of weakness. He tests us in those areas. And then as we submit to God, we are able to bear it. We are able to resist the devil. And he will flee. With every temptation, it doesn't say a way. He says the way of escape. With every temptation, he also makes a way of escape. Just like he created the heavens and the earth, in every temptation, he makes a way. There is an exit sign. In every temptation, you're a room filled with temptation. Well, there's a way out, and that way is through Jesus. That's the way of escape, but also a practical way. We can see it in the scriptures. Um, David is tempted to kill King Saul, who's after him. He's like, oh, now is the time. Now is the time that God has delivered your enemy into your hand, just as he said. Now, God never said that, but it sounded good. He says, I will not lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. So he knew who he was, and he knew that God was his ruler. He was not the king. He could just do whatever he wanted. He was ruled by God. Joseph with Potiphar's wife, looking at him and coming on to him strong and saying, hey, sleep with me. He ran. So it doesn't always look the same, how, how that way of escape is. But God has made a way of escape, the way, through Jesus. So there's hope for us, and we're not alone when we face temptation, when there's the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. 
It's like the Hebrews, did they need to keep baking bricks and gathering straw for Pharaoh and build his cities once God brought them out of Egypt and they had passed through the Red Sea and the waters fell down? Were they still, was that, they still employed by him? They were still slaves to him? No, they were following God now. Their identity had totally changed. Their whole situation was different. And so it is when we come to Christ. He saved us from death, the lusts of the flesh. And so we're not to use our past or how we feel as justification to continue in sin or to choose it. I find it really ironic that the devil would quote from Psalm 91. I want you to turn there. It's really cool. Psalm 91.9. It's like he stops short of the verses that start talking about him and how he's going to be demolished. I think that's really classic. If you're not really sure about something, keep reading. That's a good thing when you're studying the Bible. Psalm 91, starting in verse 9. There's such a comfort in here. It says, Because you have made the Lord, who is my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place, no evil shall befall you nor shall any plague come near your dwelling. For he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And here it is. You shall tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent you shall trample underfoot. Because he has set his love upon me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him on high because he has known my name. He shall call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Hmm. That's pretty awesome, huh? So after emphasizing God's promise to protect, the devil stops short of these verses that allude to him being crushed. You've got Peter comparing him to a roaring lion, the crushing of the serpent underfoot in Genesis 3.15. And not only will God deliver those who make, them, make him their refuge, but those who love him, he says, I'm going to save them. I'm going to exalt them. He says, those who know me, those who call upon me in prayer, I'm going to hear them, and I'm going to be with them in trouble. I will deliver them, honor them, satisfy them and save them. And it's not just talking about delivering and saving us from temptation or trouble now, but it's a promise of eternal life. It's a promise of a hope that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for us. If you could please turn to Psalm 22. We're going to uh, move to a time of communion. But it's such a great picture of how God hears people who cry out to him. Sometimes we can, when we feel alone, we complain, maybe to people or just internally. We despair. We, we give up. We just give up because we, we don't think that it's going to make any difference. And when you feel alone, know that Jesus, he felt alone. He knew he wasn't alone because of those promises that the Father has made to all who trust in him. But when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me from the cross? He's quoting from Psalm 22. 
And as you read through that psalm, the parallels and the descriptions of what happened on Calvary are just so clear. As he hung on the cross, he was hated, he was scorned. Verse 7 and 8 of Psalm 22, it says in the first person, all who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip, they shake the head. He tr saying, tr he trusts in the Lord, let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. You know, that's verbatim what the scribes and Pharisees flung in his face as he hung on the cross. I mean, it's word for word what they said to him. He was able to resist the temptation to avoid the cross because he had laid down his will in submission to God in Gethsemane. And he went through with it. He laid himself down willingly to be a sacrifice for sin. He kept trusting God, though he felt all alone. And Jesus felt alone when he's nailed to a cross, naked. People are sneering at him. They're gathered like a pack of dogs around a wounded animal. Verse 13, they gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. The Father was his strength. Verse 22, it brings a decisive shift from crying out to God and being surrounded and alone with these enemies. It turns to praise and thanksgiving to God. Verse 22, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and fear him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him, but when he cried to him, he heard. Sometimes we just want to be heard, and God gives us that promise. When we cry out to him, he will hear us. And he didn't, he didn't hold back or restrain himself from affliction, so therefore he does not despise those who are afflicted. Jesus was manifested so he could destroy the works of the devil so that he could save sinners who placed their faith in him for salvation. He sympathizes with our weaknesses. He knows what it's like to be a person and to feel alone and really to be alone, right? When his disciples forsook him, when he's all there crucified, he provides a way of deliverance from every temptation and it's like, Let's praise the Lord. Let's call out to him in the midst of our affliction. Let us seek him and say, Lord, be near to me. I'm drawing near to you. He, he declares a testimony of God's glory and his provision and his forgiveness. So cleansed with the blood of Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit, armed with the word of God, let's submit to God and resist the devil who was crushed. He says, he will bruise his heel, but 
he will crush the serpent's head. And the handwriting of ordinance has been nailed to the cross. All the condemnation is now gone because we're in Christ. We've been washed clean. We have the promise of a new beginning in Jesus. He is that way of escape that's been made for us. So let's praise and honor him. And as we partake of the elements today, the the bread that represents the broken body of Christ for the cup that represents the new covenant in his blood, we do this to proclaim his death till he comes. Why do we proclaim his death? Well, at least twofold, because his death is a demonstration of his love for all sinners, and because he must die so that he could rise from the dead and prove his power over sin and death and hell and the power of Satan. And so now born again, washed in his blood, let us be filled with praise to glorify our great Savior who has come and who has given everything so that we can know him and live with him forever. The one who said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that you've been so good to us in sending Jesus to be our Savior and that he didn't come as some um, person not like us who, who was able to just shrug off things and and just used divine power not available to us as God. But he humbled himself, made himself of no reputation, taking upon himself the form of a servant, though being God. And he allowed himself to feel the pinch of hunger and the, the pain of feeling alone and being tempted. And Lord, through him, we have new life. Through him, we have hope, and through you, we have eternal life and and salvation from from temptation, from the sin and the snares that easily weigh us down. And Lord, please put in us uh, hearts that praise you and glorify you for all that you've accomplished and all that you've done. And I pray, Lord, that we would not give an inch to Satan in our lives. We would not give the devil a foothold, but we would walk uprightly, having submitted ourselves to you resisting the devil so he will flee. Thank you that you're the one who has defeated our enemies. It's you who protects us. It's you who helps us. It's you who has washed us clean and made us born again through Jesus. I pray, Lord, that our lives would be a testimony of your faithfulness and of your righteousness and that you would help us, Lord, in our temptation to look to you and to walk in the victory you've given us through Christ. I thank you for my brothers and sisters here, and I pray that we would be um, moved to repent for our sin, that we would um, lament it, but we would not despair. We would receive the forgiveness. We would receive the hope of a new life, and we would walk uh, rejoicing, declaring your faithfulness in Jesus' name. Amen.